Let's turn in our Bibles together to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We're going to read from verse 15 to verse 20. Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Verse 15. Moreover, if your brother shall sin against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he shall hear you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, then take with you one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto you as a heathen man and a publican. Truly I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, as we approach this special and wonderful and weighty passage in your word. Lord, we ask that you would fill each of us with your Holy Spirit this morning, that you give us ears to hear, minds to understand. Lord, give us hearts to respond and help us to realize that whenever we open up the scriptures that we're hearing from you, help us to see that we're not just hearing from man. Lord, I pray that, help, that you would help us hear what you would have to say to each one of us this morning, and that you'd be honored this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, when we read a passage like this in the Bible, we immediately recognize that we're treading on some very weighty and difficult ground. Brothers and sisters, when we read a passage like this in the Bible, we immediately recognize that we're treading upon weighty and difficult ground. That a passage like this is not an easy teaching, is it? I mean, when, when I was reading that, or when you were reading it with me, did it strike you as an easy passage to understand or a difficult passage to understand? It's difficult ground, a difficult teaching of Jesus. Now, this passage, this section of Matthew 18 has been thought of by Christians or by readers of the New Testament as uh, one of the main sections on what's called church discipline. And the reason why this is one of the main sections on church discipline in the New Testament is because here we have Jesus' teaching on what you're supposed to do with a brother who sins against you. And also, Jesus combines this teaching with uh, the authority that the church has to exercise such discipline. And so it becomes one of the main sections on church discipline in the Bible. The problem with the idea of church discipline is that for many, it conjures up feelings and images that are not very good. When you think of church discipline, for many, it conjures up feelings of self-righteousness, judgmentalism, bad experiences. Maybe you've had a bad experience or you've heard of a bad experience? Has anyone ever heard of a bad experience with church discipline before? Yeah. And it just seems like it's all about self-righteousness. It's all about if you don't toe the line, then the church is going to boot you out or the church is going to punish you. And if you read some of the creeds of churches, um, often their section on church discipline sounds kind of like a small print policy. So the first part of the creed will say, you're saved by grace, and it's totally a free gift, and you don't have to do any works whatsoever. And then in the small print, it's like, but <laughs> if anyone sins, and if they don't repent, then the church has to excommunicate them. And you hear things like this. It's kind of like, uh, you've probably seen these things online. You can win $5 million, or you just won $5 million. Click the little box and accept the, I, say that you've read and accepted the terms and conditions, Right? You can be saved by grace. Just click this little box and accept the terms and conditions of being in the church. Church discipline 
then becomes something that's cold, kind of like a job dismissal. Anyone ever been fired before? They give you the pink slip. They tell you, you've not satisfied our expectations and our requirements. It's non-relational. You operate within a system, and if you fail the system, then you're removed. That's what happens. Say you worked at a place like Walmart. If you worked at a place like Walmart, you'd be operating within a system. And within that system, you have expectations. And if you don't meet them, then someone who doesn't know you might come along and say, you're removed, right? Now, brothers and sisters, let me ask you. When we talk about church discipline, and when we look at this passage of the teachings of Jesus, do you think that Jesus was speaking of a system or a program, something like a Walmart dismissal program? Was Jesus speaking of discipline like that? Non-relational. If you sin, the church is going to watch you and make sure that you're not sinning. And if you sin, then the church is going to send one of their executives down and tell you you've got 30 days to improve yourself or else if you don't, we're going to ask you to leave. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, we cannot believe that Jesus was talking about church discipline like that. When Jesus talks about sin, or when the Bible deals with our sins, it's always dealing with them in the context of love, forgiveness, and relationship. Even in the Old Testament, when God punished Israel for their sins, it was because he loved them, and it was because he had a relationship with them. There was nothing cold about it. And especially in the New Testament, what Jesus tells us about how we deal with the sins of others He teaches us that we should deal with the sins of others like God has treated us in our sins. Not a system. And I want to suggest to you, brothers and sisters, that this passage which we read is not a system at all, nor is it arbitrary rules. Nothing is arbitrary in the passage that we read. What we find here is principles of relationship. So when you read passages like this, but especially this one, You need to think that Jesus is not just saying, here's an arbitrary rule. If someone sins against you, go to him yourself and talk to him. That's just a a rule I'm going to give you. And then as a Christian, when someone sins against you, you go, okay, what did Jesus say to do? Oh, he said to go to them and talk to them. Okay, I will. There's nothing arbitrary about this. What Jesus is teaching us in this section is the way of relationship. The way relationship should look like with someone who sins against you. Contrast this cold system with the apostolic way. Uh, If we read in Colossians chapter 3, in Colossians chapter 3, look at verse 12 and 13. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Nothing cold about it. Nothing pink slippish about this. Colossians 3, 12, and 13. Paul tells us this, as believers in Christ, put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humility of mind, meekness, and long-suffering, forbearing with one another, that's implying that someone's obnoxious or difficult to bear with, forbearing with one another and forgiving one another if any man have a quarrel against any. Even as Christ forgave you, so also you do. So he tells us to put on bowels of mercy, not to put on a police badge, not to grab handcuffs, put on mercies, forbearance, and forgiveness. If anyone has a quarrel against any, Is it possible that in the Christian church you're going to have quarrels with other Christians? Is this possible? (laughs) You wouldn't think so, but here Paul says, you will. And what are you to do about it? You're to put on forbearance and forgiveness as Christ has forgiven you. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6, just a few books before. Galatians 6 verse 1. 
see how the, how the apostolic way is here of helping a brother who's in sin. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, so that means Paul says not everybody here, and this is not referring to someone who sins against you, but this is referring to someone who is in sin or has some fault. Someone who is spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So you see that the way to deal with sin in the New Testament is relational, meekness, forgiveness, and love. And so it is also in the Old Testament. Turn with me to the book of Leviticus, and Leviticus 19, verse 16. Leviticus 19, 16. Or excuse me, 19, 17. Well, actually, we'll read 16 and 17. Leviticus 19, 16 and 17. You shall not go up and down as a talebearer among your people. Neither shall you stand against the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You don't hate your brother. What do you do on the, on the opposite hand? You shall in any way rebuke your neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Interesting. So here, the verse right before, by the way, verse 18, which is the famous, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Moses tells us, don't hate your neighbor, rebuke your neighbor. So here we see that rebuking your neighbor doesn't equal hating your neighbor. Confronting your neighbor doesn't mean you don't love your neighbor. And when you approach your neighbor who is in sin or a neighbor who sins against you to rebuke them, you're actually doing something. You're actually loving them. You're doing that in love. That's how Moses teaches us to approach our brothers. Turn with me to Proverbs 27. Right before we go back to Matthew. Proverbs 27. Find the Psalms and head right. Proverbs 27, verse 6. According to this verse, who wounds? Friends. Okay? We have to throw away the idea that friends don't wound or that whoever wounds isn't a friend. You have to throw away that idea because there's a popular notion these days that to be a friend and to love someone is to never wound someone, whether physically or, or with your words. You just, the, the whole goal is to just be nice. But brothers and sisters, the biblical conception of love and being a friend is not just being nice. Faithful, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Isn't that amazing? But, on the other hand, here's what nice, niceness is. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Enemies will kiss you. Isn't that interesting? Enemies will be nice to you. And so you must not think that just because someone's nice to you, then that you're, they're your friend. Right? So here we see in both the Old and the New Testaments, when it comes to rebuking, when it comes to approaching another because of their sins, or when it comes to someone who sins against you, it's always in love. There's nothing non-relational about it. So turn back to Matthew chapter 18. Now why would a friend rebuke? So if, we've, if we now know that the wounds that friends give wounds, we need to ask the question, why do friends give wounds? Do friends give wounds because they think that a nice big scar across the face will look good? <laughs> help, your improve, help your appearance? <laughs> friends give wounds for the good of the one that they're wounding. Discipline is always for good. And so in verse 15 to 17, Everything here that Jesus says when it comes to approaching a brother who sinned against you, everything here 
is for the good of the brother who sins. This is not about protecting yourself. This is not about protecting the church. The church doesn't need protection. You don't need protection. This is about the good of the brother who sins against you. It's not just, I just want him to stop. I don't like the fact that he makes fun of me all the time. I don't like the fact that he slaps me all the time. This needs to come to an end. That is not what Jesus has in view here. Jesus says, turn the other cheek if someone slaps you on one side. Don't resist it. So what this has to do with is the good of the brother who sins. How many of you think that way? When someone sins against you, is your first response, is your first thought, oh, the good, I should think of the good of this person who sinned against me. That's what Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. It was, if someone slaps you on one side, turn to him the other also. Why? Because he wants to slap you. So let him slap you again. The context there is, to, is loving your enemies and doing good to those who persecute you. If someone wants you to walk one mile, go with them too. Why? For his good. He, wants, he, needed, he wanted to relieve his burden for a mile. We'll relieve his burden for two. And if he steals your coat, he probably wants some money. Or he's cold. Whatever it is, give him your cloak too. For his good. Obviously, Jesus is not teaching self protection. But I think for many of us, we go right into self-protection mode when someone sins against us. And we approach the person who sinned, not in love, not in forgiveness, but we approach them because we want this to end. <laughs> I don't want this to happen again. So I'm going to approach you and show you how upset I can be and what hell I'll raise the next time that this happens. <laughs> right? There's nothing about this here with Jesus. Notice the first thing Jesus says you're to do. If your brother sins against you, verse 15, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I want to suggest to you that that instruction, it's not arbitrary, it's all about relationship, and it's all about protecting the person who sinned against you. The emphasis here is tell him his sin between you and him alone. That means your neighbor doesn't need to know about it. Okay? Johnny next door doesn't need to know about it. Your buddies at the, at the club don't need to know about it. Jesus is saying, the first thing you do is you don't gossip about it. As we read in Leviticus 19, don't go up and down as a talebearer among your people. Now, we all know that's true, but how many of us have been guilty of gossiping about someone who sinned against us. Yeah? Someone sins against you, and what do you like to do? You like to tell other people about it. And you like to tell other people about it because you love them? <laughs> Is that why? <laughs> You're seeking their good? <laughs> Brothers and sisters, when a, and sometimes we'll, we'll gossip in the, and we'll pretend it's about love, you know, we really need to pray for this brother. You know what he did? Yeah, he did this. We really need to pray for this brother. <laughs> and so we try to pretend it's about love. But what it is, brothers and sisters, when we gossip about another person's sin, and usually we gossip about their sin when it's against us, it's not because we love our neighbor. It's because we love ourselves. And when we gossip about them, in a sense, we're doing two things. We're punishing them. We don't like them, and we want other people to not like them either. And also, we want ourselves to seem better in other people's eyes. So we try to punish the person by gossiping, and we also try to get sympathy and make people like us and make us seem like we're better than that other person. And frankly, when you look at it from this perspective, gossiping is devilish and not Christ-like. There's nothing Christ-like about gossiping. But when you want relationship and when you love people, this is not an arbitrary rule that Jesus is laying down. If you love someone and want their good, you won't gossip about it. You'll go talk to them about it between you and that person alone. That's the way of Christ. J.C. Ryle wrote, many a scandalous breach would be prevented if we were more ready to practice the rule of between thee and him alone. 
Happy would it be for the church and the world if this portion of our Lord's teaching was more carefully studied and obeyed. Things Ryle saying, if we, if we went and dealt with it that way, then maybe offenses wouldn't become great forest fires in the church or offenses in the world. Christ does away with gossip here, or at least he tells us to do away with gossip. Did you know that God, I don't believe that God will broadcast our sins in heaven. Do you think God gossips about us in heaven? <laughs> hey, Gabriel, <laughs> do you know what Elliot did? Yeah, he did that. That's disgusting, but I love him, and I died for him. <laughs> and you know what? I believe when we get to heaven, because I think for many Christians, and I'm speculating, I could be wrong about this, and, but here's what I believe. This isn't the word of God. When we get to heaven, I think many Christians think, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken, as we say. I'm accepted, you were condemned. But when we get to heaven, God's going to put a video screen on, give everybody popcorn, and play our lives so that everyone goes, ooh, oh, that was bad. Oh, but he's forgiven, <laughs> right? I think we're going to be amazed when we get to heaven to see how God has truly covered us in the robe of righteousness. And that even though we know that we're sinners, we're going to be amazed at the reception we get in heaven. Doesn't Peter say, an abundant reception will be welcome you when you get, to the, when you get there? So people are going to say, hey, here comes the sinner who's forgiven. They'll say, here's someone who's righteous. And you'll sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and have a meal. And you'll know that you shouldn't be there, but everyone will be just rejoicing that you're there. And I don't think God's going to broadcast our sins. I would guess that we probably are going to be the one who's confessing our sins at the table. We might be like, did you know that I'm a sinner? Do you know this is what I did, but he forgave me? And we'll, our confession will be confession of joy. A confession of thanksgiving. God truly covers our sins, for love covers a multitude of sins. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. When you get to heaven, you'll realize how beautiful God, I believe, how beautiful God has covered you and clothed you and taken away all shame. Number two, what is the purpose, according to verse 15, of you going to your brother? So first we saw one principle here of relationship is you go to him alone and you don't gossip. But look at verse 15. If he will hear you, guess what happens? It doesn't say you fixed him, right? You sorted him out. You embarrassed him. You protected yourself from him. It says you have gained him. Isn't that a beautiful positive expression? If you go to your brother, between him and you alone, you tell him his fault and he hears you, you've got him. You've gained him. That's a positive thing. You've won him in the Greek. In the Proverbs, Proverb 9, verse 8, says this, If you rebuke a wise man, he will love you. If you rebuke a wise man, he will love you. Proverbs 28, verse 23 says, He that rebukes a man shall afterwards find more favor than he that flatters with the tongue. And I believe this is what Jesus is saying. That if you go to a brother and rebuke him, if you go to a brother and you tell him his fault, and he listens to you, you've won him in this sense. He now has, you, you've won reconciliation and a better relationship with him than you had before. You've gained him to, first of all, being reconciled together with him. So you've gained that relationship back, and it's a better one than you had before. Have you ever experienced that before? Have any of you ever experienced a relationship with someone where sin causes an obstruction within that relationship or a break within that relationship? And you didn't just walk away from it, but you came together and reconciled, and because you reconciled, your relationship became stronger on account of it. Can you relate to that? Have you ever experienced that? It's often the people that you've gone through uh, reconciliation with, you have a better relationship than someone that you've never had any sin, there's never been any sin at all involved 
in it before. And I think it's because the one that you rebuke and the one that you approach knows that you love him. And how much does a person know that you love him if you approach him in forgiveness when he's the one who sinned against you, right? It's one thing to just approach a brother for, for, uh, to point out his sin if it wasn't against you, but how much more when it is against you? Why do we do this? Because we love and seek relationship with this person who sinned against us. Here we see one of the main features of Christ's teaching on reconciliation. Who is supposed to go and be, who is supposed to go to the other person first? The one who sinned or the one who was sinned against? This is one of the main features of Jesus' teaching on reconciliation. When someone sins against another person, let's say person A sins against person B, or let's make it more personal. Let's say Elliot sins against Nathaniel. Who is supposed to go, according to Jesus, to initiate reconciliation? Elliot, who sinned, or Nathaniel, who was sinned against? Nathaniel. That's what he says in verse 15. If a brother sins against you, he doesn't say, wait until that brother comes back to you and apologizes, and then when he apologizes, then forgive him. If a brother sins against you, verse 15, go. The one who is sinned against is to initiate reconciliation. James Denny writes, He is not because he's in the right to wait passively and nurse his grievance till the offender comes and confesses that he's in the wrong. If you forgive someone, then you seek reconciliation. The reason why we don't seek reconciliation is because we haven't forgiven, right? Someone sins against you, you haven't forgiven them, you're, you're, as Denny says, nursing the grievance, and as long as you're doing that, you don't want to go to that other person. You say, I'll wait here until they come and talk to me, and you feel justified. But it's because you haven't forgiven. Jesus is saying here, if you really love someone, and if you really forgive someone, you will seek reconciliation with that person. You even think of the good of this person. This person sinned against me. That must mean that this person is in a bad frame of mind. He sinned against me, and he's either got two problems right now in his mind. One, he doesn't care about his sin against me, and that's not good. And two, maybe he cares and he's afraid that I won't forgive him. So he's either indifferent or he's afraid. And both of those things, we should think, that's not a good frame of mind. That's, that's a bad place to be. I'm going to go to him and assure this person of my love. I'm going to go to this person and assure them that even though you sinned against me, and yes, it was wrong, I forgive. I love you. Love seeks the good of even those who sin against us. And brothers and sisters, is this not exactly what God did for us? Isn't this simply, this is no arbitrary rule, is it? This is the way of love and the way of relationship. This is what we have come to know about God. We have sinned against God, and many of us are either indifferent about it, we don't care. There's many people in this world who sin against God, and they don't care. They're indifferent. And God still loves them and goes and seeks to initiate reconciliation with those who don't care. And then there's those, of, those, then there's those people who sin against God, and they care, and they're afraid because they don't know that God is forgiving. That's how I became a Christian. When I became a Christian, I was 21, and I had sinned against God plenty of times in my life, but I hadn't really, I had been indifferent about it until finally I stopped being indifferent about it, and my indifference turned to fear because I was afraid that I'd sinned away 
all hope of having a relationship with God. And I was afraid that because, of, because my sins were so clear and bad and rebellious and nasty and right in the face of God, that God didn't want anything to do with me and that God, in a sense, was kind of like I would be when someone sinned against me. Because when someone sinned against me, I'd hold it against them. And I thought God was like that too, and so I was afraid. And I didn't know that God had forgiveness in his heart towards me. And the only way I knew, this is, the, this is how I became a Christian, the only way I knew that God was forgiving, the only way I knew that he wanted relationship with me is that he initiated it by sending Christ to die for my sins. Because if God didn't want relationship with us, brothers and sisters, and if God didn't want forgiveness with us, and he didn't have forgiveness with us, he would not have sent Christ to die for us. Do you see in the death of Jesus Christ not merely a system or an arbitrary rule or an opportunity for you to repent and make it right, but do you see in the death of Christ God, the one whom you've sinned against, coming out of heaven in forgiveness and grace and love? Does the cross of Jesus tell you about God's heart towards you as a sinner. If it doesn't, you're not seeing what the death of Christ, what the cross of Jesus is all about. But when you see it, all fear turns to joy and gratitude and amazement at his amazing love as we sang about. Amen? You see that? Brothers and sisters, the, the cross is a message of God's forgiveness towards those of us who have sinned. And if we want to walk in the way of love and relationship with others, then we must walk in the way of initiating reconciliation with those who sin against us. Verse 16, but what if he doesn't hear? What if this person who sinned against us, he's not afraid that we won't forgive? Because you, clearly you come to him with forgiveness. So he wasn't afraid that you won't forgive, and that's why he was hiding. He didn't care. What happens if a person sins against you, and they don't care? And you come to them with re reconciliation, and they will not have it. What then? What if he turns out to be a scorner or a fool, according to the Proverbs? Does Jesus say, he's hopeless, you give up? You gossip about him now. No. The second step here is not, not arbitrary either. This is the next step of relationship. And notice Jesus says, you don't broadcast it all abroad. You take one person, or, or two, two at most, one or two, and you go to him again. And you seek reconciliation to win the brother, to gain the brother. Not to sort him out, not to fix him, but to win him back to relationship. Now, according to Jesus, neither of these two approaches are ineffective. Our Lord would not have taught them if they were not effective. He wouldn't have prescribed them if they didn't work. And I think the problem is, is that for, for, for many church discipline stories, they just jumped to the church discipline part. <laughs> and I think for many of us Christians, we even struggle to initiate when it comes to someone sinning against us. Right? The problem is, is we probably haven't practiced these first two things very well. And we figure, oh, he sinned against me, he's not going to listen. Or we gossip or we go right to the church. But I believe that these two ways, Jesus teaches them because they are effective and that many problems would be solved if we actually had love and forgiveness in our hearts and we practice these two things. However, Jesus does give us a third step. In the rare case that someone refuses to hear the group of two or three. And that's bad. 
So this person saying, I don't, want I don't care about my sin, and I don't want reconciliation with you. Then you come with another person or two more, and he says, I don't care, I don't want reconciliation with you. He refuses them. Jesus says, in that rare case, then you go to the church, and you tell it to the church. Now this is not the global church. You don't post it online for the whole world to see. <laughs> Right. You don't tell, no. This is the local church. This is the assembly or the synagogue. So that way you've got a large group now coming. For what purpose? To punish him? Fix him? Straighten him out? No. To gain the brother. It's all to gain the brother. Because here, three times Jesus repeats, if he hears them, or if he doesn't hear them, well, what is he trying to hear? He's trying to hear the message of reconciliation. So you see how important reconciliation is to Christ and to God. The goal is not to get the person to merely stop sinning. The goal is to win him to what is good. But, Jesus says, if the person does not hear the church, then he says, let him be unto you as a heathen or as a publican. Now that phrase can only mean two things. One, that this person is a brother, but you treat him as a heathen. He is a brother, but you treat him as a heathen. The other, thing, the other option that this could mean is that he has shown that he isn't a brother, but a heathen. And so you treat him, for that's what he is. So he either is a brother that you treat as a heathen, or he is a heathen, and so you treat him as a heathen. Now, regardless of whichever it is, both of those are for his good. If he isn't a brother, it's not good to treat him as a brother. If he is a brother, there's a reason why you would treat him as a heathen, for his good and for the same solution, for his confession and for reconciliation. So it's all for his good. Jesus is not saying he's hopeless case throw him out and never see him again, good riddance. It's for his good. And brothers and sisters, I believe the first meaning is correct. That what Jesus means here is that the man is as a heathen. Not that he is a heathen. You'll notice he says, let him be unto you as a heathen man and a publican. I think Jesus could have said it clearer if he meant otherwise. He could have said, the man is a heathen or publican, but he's to be to you as one. So because Jesus phrases it this way, and also for the simple reason that it is possible for Christians to be jerks. Right? <laughs> it's possible. How many of you have ever sinned against another person and you were stubborn about it and wouldn't confess? Now, according to Jesus, it's only on the third time that you say this person is to be treated as a heathen. But the first two times are really bad. Think about it. You sin against someone, you go to him, and he refuses reconciliation. Jesus says he's not a heathen. Don't treat him as a heathen. Then you go with two or three, and he still says, forget it, guys, I don't care. And Jesus says, you don't treat him as a heathen. So Christians can be jerks. And there's not much difference between rejecting the church and rejecting a, since a brother or two or three. But at that point, there's nothing else you can do but treat him as a heathen. Since you're acting like a heathen, we'll treat you like a heathen. Now, acting like a heathen doesn't merely mean you sin. It means you refuse reconciliation. Christians and heathens both sin. But Christians, if we... What, is, what does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 4? If Christians walk in the, uh, in the truth of Christ and not like the heathen in the vanity of their minds. Actually, Paul says, don't walk like the heathen in the vanity of your minds. It means it's not an automatic thing. But if you walk like the heathen in the vanity of your mind, then you're not going to pursue reconciliation, confession, and the forgiveness, of, forgiveness with another person. And since you want to act like a heathen, then we'll treat you like a heathen. And what does that mean? According to Adam Clark, the commentator, he says this, you are, as a Christian, to owe him earnest and persevering goodwill and acts of kindness. 
but to have no religious communion with him till he has been convicted and acknowledged his fault. Paul, the apostle in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14 and 15, I think says something similar to this. Have no company with him that he may be ashamed, but yet treat him not as a, uh, what does he say here? But treat him not, oh, admonish him as a, not as an enemy, but as a brother. So you're not to have company with him. That I understand it to mean you treat him as a heathen. But not as an enemy. In the hope of reconciliation. And brothers and sisters, in all of these steps that Jesus is giving, forgiveness is always extended. Forgiveness is always available for the person if he simply not stops his sin. There's no sense, if you sin against me, then you can't have fellowship with me. But if he confesses and acknowledges his wrong and embraces reconciliation with this brother whom he sinned against. Now in verse 18 to 22, Jesus explains the authority that Christians have to do this. Because one might ask, well, who gives the church or Christians, the authority to treat someone like a heathen or to not fellowship with someone or to not have company with another person. And Jesus tells us in 18 to 22 that the body of Christ is given authority to do this. And in verse 18, he first tells us something he's already said, that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is not talking about excommunication here. Verse 18 he doesn't say whosoever you bind shall be bound, and whoever you, he's, it's whatsoever. It's not talking about uh, binding or loosing people. In fact, this expression, binding and loosing, in Jewish culture in both the first century and today, simply means permitting or prohibiting, according to the law. What is permissible and what isn't permissible. In this case, what isn't permissible is not reconciling with another brother. Here he says that the church has the authority to teach the way of salvation through grace, through faith, and as well as this way of discipline. It's amazing in verse 19 and 20 what Christ promises to the church. Again, I say it to you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father who is in heaven. For, here's why, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of him. Another interesting insight into the culture of the Jews is that the rabbis themselves would say something almost exactly like this. The rabbis would say, where three are gathered together to judge, there the glory of God is. There the Shekinah glory of God is. When three people, Jews, would gather together to make a judgment. And here Jesus is saying, where two, doesn't even have to be three now, where two or three are gathered together in his name, he is there. The Shekinah glory of God in Jesus, he is there. Gathering together in the name of Christ, Jesus, doesn't just mean you gather together with the name tag on your shirt or on your building. That does, that's not what gathering together in his name means. It's not that shallow. Gathering together in his name means gathering together in Christ. Christ as he is, not as he isn't. Gathering together in the name of all that Christ is, in the name of Christ and his gospel, Christ and his grace, Christ the one who brings reconciliation with us and God. And there's a musical image here as well. Notice in verse 19, that if two of you shall agree on earth, the word agree here in the Greek is the word symphonio, where we get the word symphony. So basically he's saying, if two or three of you are in symphony together down here on earth, a musical image of the saints playing together to the conductor's cue. Isn't that interesting? The saints are in agreement because the saints are following their 
exalted head. The conductor taps the uh, podium or whatever you call it, and he calls the saints to order. And wherever the saints are playing together in harmony, praying according to the will of God, there Christ is, and there the authority of God is found. The authority comes from God. People ask all the time or think about this question of authority, especially in our culture here, right? What is authority? There's a lot of misunderstanding about what authority is. But here's the simple biblical case for authority. God himself and God alone has all authority. There's no authority apart from God. And by God's word and by the revelation of his will, we know what is authoritative or not. Because God's the authority. What he speaks is. By his word we know his will. Authority is not a magic power. It's not something that's passed along by a badge or by a formula. You can say, I've got authority because it was passed along to me like a hot potato. And now it's in my hands and now I can make the rules. Authority is from God alone. And God is in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is in the doctrine of the apostles whom he commissioned to preach in his name. And so wherever two or three are gathered in that name, or two or three are gathered together in symphony with the word of God, there is Christ and there is God and his authority. So the emphasis here is on symphony. If we're in harmony with the word of God, there is Christ and authority. The church has no authority apart from the word of God. Because of that idea, you had all sorts of abuses throughout history where the church basically, uh, the Roman Catholic Church would say, yeah, the Bible, the scriptures, that's important, but the church also has an independent authority outside of the scriptures. And the scriptures are important, yes, but we have an authority outside of the scriptures. And so we can have canon law, and we can make uh, statements that also need to be obeyed by people. But brothers and sisters, the church has no authority apart from the word. And where there is no word, there's no church. The church stands or falls with the word of God. And so here in the Bible, in closing, we have on the authority of God's word, instructions about reconciliation with an unreconcilable brother. What happens when a Christian sins against you and you seek reconciliation and he will not have it? He doesn't, he's not afraid that you won't forgive him. He's indifferent about it. Christianity is all about reconciliation. It's all about the forgiveness of sins. It's all about the, the truth that sins can be and are forgiven. And if you forgive someone, you will initiate reconciliation with them. In order for this passage and what's called church discipline to not be cold and non-relational, and self-righteous, and just a mere system, we need to remember what these words mean. They're not arbitrary. They're the true principles of relationship. I think if we were to study each of these three points, we would see that God himself does these things. The point of the gospel is reconciliation. One of the masters of reconciliation, R.C. Chapman, wrote, the discipline exercised by the church of God should be a picture of our heavenly Father's character. The discipline exercised by the church of God should be a picture of our Heavenly Father's character. And what did the Father do when we had sinned against him, when we were either indifferent or afraid? He sought us in love. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate statement about how God works reconciliation. He initiates. He bears our sins in love. He preaches forgiveness and welcomes us to come. But if a person doesn't come, what do we know in the Bible? Is, is reconciliation with God an automatic thing? No. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. After telling, after telling men that God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, but who died for our sins and who knew no sin, he became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The preaching is this, be reconciled to God. 
and we tell people on the streets and we tell people on campus and as Christians we preach to the world that yes, you've sinned against God, but God loves you. Christ died for you. Be reconciled to him for he's reconciled to you. But if they don't respond, then there isn't reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, how things would be different in our church, in our communities, if we practiced going, if we practiced not gossiping, if we practiced gaining our brother through seeking reconciliation in love. There's many people and pastors who lament the fact that the church these days doesn't practice church discipline. Many pastors will say that. Churches don't, today don't practice church discipline. And they say, it's better to practice poorly than to not practice at all. Right? But I want to say this. Brothers and sisters, according to Jesus, you cannot practice church discipline if it isn't done properly in love. You cannot. There's no such thing as poor church discipline because it only works when it's in love. And if, so if it's not in love and you want to impose a system upon the church, let me suggest you've got the wrong authority. Or you don't have authority to do that. You end up hurting people and not healing people, which is the whole point. So brothers and sisters, let us remember what God has done for us who set the example of reconciliation because we're going to have to deal with it throughout our whole lives. People sinning against us, right? You're going to have to deal with it. And the reality is there will be people who won't want to reconcile with you when you want to reconcile with them. And they might even be Christians. And if they're Christians, they're not walking with their minds set on the truth of the gospel, but they're with the vanity of their minds. But Jesus has given us instructions on how to live lives of reconciliation, forgiveness, and love. And only then, when we walk and think and live according to what Jesus has shown, should we expect to gain our brothers and to convince the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what can we say, Lord? You are so amazing in how you have loved us, how you've shown us this radical way of seeking reconciliation. Lord, that you have initiated with us and shown us what forgiveness really is all about. Father, I pray that for us as Christians who know the gospel, that we would learn to reconcile and forgive as you have also forgiven. If anyone has a quarrel against any, that we would forgive as Christ forgave and realize that in that it means initiating. And Lord, if there's anyone who is a Christian who is so bogged down in the things of this world and has forgotten the beautiful truth of forgiveness. Lord, we just pray that you would show them their sin, their sin of not rejoicing in your grace. And Lord, that you would just win back into fellowship those who refuse to acknowledge the truth. Lord, make, mark our communities with forgiveness and love and reconciliation. May we not have to ever deal with this third step. May we be such experts at the first two that we wouldn't have to. We praise you for your goodness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.